Oh, the conversations are done. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Yeah, enjoying it? Enjoying the weather? Oh, I hope so. Uh, my name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. I just got a couple of things for you. Man, if you're new, welcome. Love to hang out with you. A little bit about us. Uh, we love Jesus, we love His Word, and we love coffee. And I uh, hope you've gotten some. And, uh, and if you are new, please fill out a Connect card, drop it in the offering basket later this morning. Uh, we'd love to connect. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, we have a gift for you. That, that would be our gift to you. Uh, why don't you go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. We're coming to a close in our time uh, in the book of Philippians. It's been a wonderful study. I hope you guys have enjoyed it uh, as you've studied, as you've discussed it uh, within your community groups. Um, and it's been a phenomenal study for me and in our community group as we've gotten to talk about it and work through a bunch of things. And so we're going to uh, close up our series titled Citizens. We're going to close this series up next week. And just to give you an idea of where we're headed, Afterwards, I think it's November 25th, it's the Sunday after uh, Thanksgiving, we're going to be starting a, a six-week series called Glory, the Person and Work of Jesus. And so we're going to be talking a lot more about Jesus over those last six weeks leading to the end of the year. Uh, it's not necessarily a, a, a series in Advent, but it fits, so we're running with it. And, uh, and so you could expect that again, November 25th. Let me kind of give you just this brief recap of our time in Philippians. I'll do that today and, and I'll do it once more next week as we, as we close our time. And so the, the letter to the Philippians was written by a man named Paul. And Paul is writing to the Philippians from a prison in Rome. And uh, the book of Philippians or the letter to the Philippians has uh, a tremendous amount of themes in it. We've, we've uncovered or unpacked several of those themes as we've walked together in this series. Uh, Paul has walked through things like joy. He has walked through humility. Uh, he is walking through unity. And as we've kind of walked into chapter four, we, we looked at a, a large chunk of scripture last week. As we looked at chapter 4, Paul begins to begin uh, making his, his closing remarks. And in these closing remarks, he has been pushing for unity. He has been pushing for the Philippian Christians. He's been pushing for us to pursue the peace of God. His pursuit, he has pushed us to dig our heels and to stand firm in the work that Christ has already conquered. In fact, that was a large part of our time last week that when Paul says stand firm not only is he using endearing language to the Philippians but he is also telling them if you're going to stand firm on the gospel you need to know that you're standing firm on ground that has already been conquered by Christ on your behalf and so really the the rest of of, of, of chapter four is this culmination of encouragements, of exhortations, some hard words, some soft words, some encouraging words. And that's where we find ourselves today. We're going to look at a, at a small section in Scripture with one of the most quoted verses in all of Scripture. Some of you may even have that tattooed on your wrist because you're cool. Um, or, or maybe you have it hashtagged on your Instagram because that's creative. And uh, and so we're, we're going to look at this, and, and I'm going I'm to start our time by reading uh, God's Word, and then I'll pray. And then, uh, like most times, we'll, we'll just dive in. 
So this is, uh, this is Paul beginning in verse 10. We're going uh, through verse 13. He writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Let's pray. God, as we begin to look at Your Word, uh, God, I pray that we would meet You in Your Word and that You would just reveal Yourself to us. That You would be at work in us, convicting us, transforming us so that we would become more like Jesus, so that we would grow to know Jesus more than what we know right now. God, I pray that I would be set aside, that it would be you at work speaking through me. God, we pray that this time would glorify you and that it would be for our good. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Before diving into verses 10 through 13, I thought I'd start by way of illustration. You see, one of the big themes that we're going to talk about in this section is going to be contentment. But in order to talk properly, I think, about contentment, we need to look at uh, kind of a worldview of contentment, how, how the world views it and what does it look like for us to pursue it. And so before we dive into the, the, the theological part of what Paul says in this section, one thing I do want you to know up, uh, one thing I do want you to know as, begin, as we begin to walk through this is that contentment reveals character and character reveals conviction. It's going to reveal where you're going to dig your heels. Character is going to reveal what you believe. Character is going to reveal how you live. And that isn't necessarily something that we should take loosely. Uh, it is something that we should take seriously. But oftentimes, uh, many people, particularly in the church, are very flippant about uh, what character means and what it actually looks to dig our heels into the ground. Digging our heels in order to stand firm, as Paul was encouraging the Philippians and us last week. Dig our heels to stand firm in the work of Christ completed on our behalf. And so I thought I'd walk through two avenues in which contentment is often pursued. Now, I would say in the front end that these might not be the only two avenues, but we don't have a lot of time. And so I thought I'd talk about two of them. So again, these aren't the only two avenues in which many people, both in and outside of the church, pursue contentment. The first one is, is the pursuit of happiness. Now, I'll be very brief on the pursuit of happiness. If you want a little bit more statistics and, and research done on this, this is actually something that we walk through in our Beatitudes series. And if you listen to that first sermon again, there are a little bit more dense uh, stats and figures related to happiness. But what I do want to say regarding contentment and happiness is that many times, particularly in the United States, contentment is associated with happiness. Contentment is associated with happiness, and that inevitably leads us to the pursuit of happiness, 
The problem with the pursuit of happiness is that everyone has a different definition of what it means to be happy. And because everybody has a different definition of what it means to be happy, everybody's running in so many different directions that no one is ultimately obtaining it or can they actually define it. And so when we look at a couple of stats and figures, we see that only one-third of Americans claim to be happy. Now, these studies were first conducted in the 1970s. And from the 1970s to about 2017, the numbers really haven't fluctuated. It's generally been between 32% and 35% over the course of those years. Only a third of Americans claim to be happy. And so because everybody has a different view or everybody has a different definition of what it means to be happy, everybody runs to maybe what everyone else is doing or maybe everybody turns to someone who who looks like they understand it, looks like they got it. And so we walk into something called, that's very popular here in the States, we walk into something called spirituality. That when we jump into spirituality, we're looking to see, uh, man, we're looking to find, excuse me, we're looking to find truth. We're looking to see that, man, we can discover truth within ourselves. And you might know that, or you might have even heard that this is something very common. Man, the truth comes from within you. Truth is what you ultimately find as you lose yourself. And so when you get into the realm of spirituality, now you're messing around with a bunch of different things. You're messing around with things like uh, prosperity theology. You might be messing around with mysticism. You might be messing around with self-help books. If you go to Barnes and Noble and and you go to uh, the Christianity section, there's going to be an entire section on self-help. Everything ranging from Oprah's, uh, you know, positive thinking to teachers like Joel Osteen, who is like, man, you just need to claim the I am, which is horrible. Don't do that. And so uh, he, he, they, they preach a lot of this in self-help. More so, the, the need to find happiness in order to obtain contentment is so strong in the United States that it's even called spiritual spending. It's not necessarily called spirituality. I think only those who, who are really trying to look for it will say that. But in terms of, of, uh, of the business world, it's called spiritual spending. And spiritual spending is a $10 billion industry. People are spending loads of cash, not just on self-help books, not just on uh, books on mysticism, but they are spending a load of cash trying to find the next type of revelation, right? It could be yoga. It could be Pilates. It could be, man, we're going on these excursion trips into the mountains of Mission, Texas and losing ourselves and trying to find out, man, what is the meaning of life as I'm on this 12-foot hill? And so we're working through all of these things in light of, in light of happiness. The problem is, again, no one knows what happiness is. And because no one knows what, or no one can define what happiness is, and that many people are very essentially finding it. But what we know from Scripture is that revelation and truth is actually imparted into us as a result of God dwelling in us. And we see that all the way in the beginning. All the way, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, we see that not only does God create, not only does God give man identity, not only does God give man <coughs> um, purpose or a job, but man also, or excuse me, but God also gives man truth. And so we see that truth is something that is imparted into us as a result of God in us. And so that's one way of looking at contentment. Another way uh, under, underneath the whole happiness 
umbrella is that people will define it by success, right? And it doesn't necessarily have to be financial success. That man, maybe contentment, obtaining contentment is defined by me having success, And success could be a variety of things. That's the other issue, that it's a variety of things. That it could be maybe you've made it in your your business. Your your business, your local business, uh, or your company is thriving. Uh, Maybe it's the fact that you graduated college. Maybe you just got married. Maybe you just had kids. Maybe you aspire to those things. And so you say, man, as soon as I get that, then I will be happy. And ultimately, what we're doing, I think outside of the church, we would call those goals or even trophies, but man, scripturally or biblically, what we would call those things are idols. But we don't want to use that word because when we look at things like that, we would argue and push back and say, well, those are good things. But at the end of the day, we're being, uh, we're, we're ultimately looking for the good of our idols. And so that's one way to look at contentment in light of the pursuit of happiness. The second way uh, is, is Finding contentment or obtaining contentment through passivity by way of escapes. Now, what I mean by escapes is ultimately when life gets really hard and when it gets really loud and when responsibility starts to creep up on our shoulders and it feels like it's really heavy, many people, in fact, most people will turn to escapes. Escapes could be drugs. Escapes could be Um, entertainment. Escapes could be work. Escape could be pornography. You can look at so many different categories of escape. We're only going to look at one, and I will preface this. It's not because I think it's bad. I just thought it was hilarious, but we're going to look at one of the escapes of which Americans tend to turn to the most, and we're going to look at uh, the category of entertainment, and that is watching TV, Right now, again, I'm not against watching TV. My son and I saw Venom the other day. It was pretty awesome. But these statistics, I thought, were uh, very insightful and, uh, and, and I hope convicting, right? And so when we're talking about escapes, remember, we're talking about escapes in the sense that we are turning away from responsibility to dive into something that's going to help us run away from the reality, run away from responsibility, run away from what is going on. Inevitably, what that does is that it creates passivity, come what will attitude, or this is just my life for the way it is, or it becomes passive in the sense that, man, this is, uh, I really don't want to touch responsibility, so I'm just going to stay here. I'm kind of not really bothering anybody, uh, so I'm just going to, I think, I think this is as good as it gets, right? This is, this is my life. And so we're going to look at a couple of stats regarding TV. So Americans, on average, spend anywhere between 20 to 30 hours a week watching TV, right? Uh, how many of you do this or have binge-watched? You can raise your hands on this one, right? So we all know what that means. Great. For those that don't know what binge-watching TV or shows is, it's where you sit on your couch with a couple of chips and maybe a Diet Coke, and you just watch TV for hours and hours on end. Uh, in this case, maybe it's a, it's a show, right? You watch like an entire season in your socks, and that's, the, that's cool, I guess. And so, uh, so you do that, right? So you binge-watch. Now, In light of that, I wanted to talk a little bit about what that does and how that really just enables us to continue to be passive and to really continue to retreat and then defend 
define contentment by, at least I'm not really bothering anyone, or to define contentment by just being passive and really not doing anything with our lives. And so when we binge watch, what happens is that our brain releases this chemical called dopamine. Dopamine is the same chemical that the brain releases in terms of pleasure when uh, doing something like drugs. In other words, it's telling you this feels good. I want some more. And so when you binge watch TV, the brain releases dopamine. And so you're thinking, man, this is legit. This is awesome. I so love this show. And so you get really into it, right? And so what you ultimately do is you create a pseudo addiction. In other words, it's a pseudo addiction based on it's not necessarily something tangible like a pill or a bottle that you're addicted to. And you would even justify it by saying, man, this is how I decompress. This is how I de-stress. This is what I do to hang out and chill out. I watch 30 hours of TV a week, right? That might be what you say. But nevertheless, you're creating an addiction. What happens when we uh, immerse ourselves in something like this escape uh, is that it leads to something called identification or wishful identification. All of this is research excursions. You could check this out. And so wishful identification is when you're binge-watching TV for hours and upon hours, uh, and then at some point you make this special connection to one of the characters on the show. And you're like, man, my life is like Mel Gibson's. It's just it's exactly like that. And, and, and so therefore, I can relate. Uh, and it may not be this like comedy thing. Maybe it's a drama. You're just like, oh man, my personality is just like houses from house. And so uh, you, you, you dive into, uh, man, the, the, the character details of these people. And so you're immediately connected. And that's what makes you go back for more. And you laugh because it's true. And so you go back for more. Now, if that's not depressing enough, right, we go from binge-watching to uh, wishful identification to when the show or the series is over, what ends up happening? You get sad, right? Emma's over here like, don't even talk about that. And so you get sad. This is called situational depression. Like, oh my gosh, right? Situational depression is almost like this willingness to exhibit the symptoms of actual depression, that you will withdraw from people. You will begin to isolate yourself and you will begin to disconnect more and more from human interaction. And it's not just because you might say, well, I'm an introvert. No, it's because you're looking for the next fix. You're looking for the next fix. You're just masking it by saying, I'm looking for another good show, right? That's all it really is. And so we're addicted with escapes. And so when we become addicted with escapes, we ultimately enter into this world of passivity. And it's come what may, and this is as good as it's going to get. And so really the excitement is when I connect to this character. And I hate life when the show is over. That's why some people will watch some shows or some series several times on end. And so that's really bad and depressing. But what we see, now changing it back to Philippians, but what we see in Philippians, particularly verse 12, and we'll dive into verses uh, 10 and 11, But what we see is that Paul says, in every situation, I've learned to be content. He says, I've learned to be content. It's like he's talking about it like it's a good thing. And so if contentment isn't necessarily something bad, or it isn't something bad like Paul writes, then how do we 
obtain it without losing our identity? How do we obtain contentment without falling into escapes? How do we as Christians, uh, as Paul says, press on toward the goal when all of these other elements seem to be a lot louder? Well, we're going to see what Paul says. And I want to reread verses 10 and 11 uh, as we dive into this. And actually, we'll park at verse 10 and we'll go verse by verse. And so Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord. Now I want you to circle in the Lord because that is going to be something incredibly important uh, from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Because when he writes, man, I rejoice, not just the, not, he's not just talking about joy, but when he says, I rejoiced in the Lord, there is conviction that Paul has that comes from his relationship with Christ, and it's conviction that comes from what Christ has done for Paul, in Paul, and is doing through Paul. And in fact, he believes it so much, right, that the central focus of Paul's ministry is Jesus. And so I would argue that the first step, if you want to look at it that way, that the first step in obtaining or pursuing contentment is that Christ is at the center of everything in spite of your circumstance, season, or situation. In fact, Paul believes this so much that if we go back to the rest of the letter, we see Paul emphasizing this and writing about this joy in the Lord so many times because he believes convictionally about the work of Jesus uh, for him. He believes in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit at work in him. So if you go to, and actually you could just listen to these because I'm just going to give you a quick list. In Philippians 1.21, Paul says, for to me to live is Christ. So he is pursuing Christ in every and any situation. And to die is gain. Philippians 2.24, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also, uh, Philippians 3, 9 through 10, he says, and be found in him that he, Paul, wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And finally, what we just looked at, Philippians 4, 10a, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Paul uh, embraces his relationship with God with such conviction that he has learned to be content in every single situation. And it is not just made evident in the letter to the Philippians. Excluding Acts, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and James, Paul writes, in 2 Peter, but Paul writes about being in Christ more than 93 times in his letters to the churches he is writing to. It is not just something that he talks about because he's in Christian circles or it's Sunday morning chatter. It is something that he grinds his feet in and stands on. It is the finished work of Christ done on his behalf. And so he can say that his relationship with God flourishes because of what God is doing in him. 
And that's the first argument, that if we're going to obtain contentment or if we're going to pursue contentment, man, we need to rejoice in the Lord greatly in what He has done on our behalf. And we will get practical because I know some of you might uh, sit back and say, yeah, I get that, but so what? And what does that look like? We'll get there, but this is the first step. This is the first step that we recognize that Christ must be at the center of everything. Paul continues, Now that at length you have revived your concern for me, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Here's what's going on in this section and, and a little bit into next week's. So Paul is writing to the Philippians about a gift that they have just given him. And he is saying, man, you've revived your concern for me. There came a point uh, where Paul didn't have any correspondence from the Philippians. And it wasn't because they didn't love him, and it wasn't because they didn't care for him. It's because Paul kept moving around, and so they didn't really know where he was at. It wasn't until him being in a Roman prison that they were able to find him, write to him, and and hook him up with gifts. If you walk through the book of Acts, at one point we see Paul make his way to Thessalonica. He gets kicked out. He goes to another city called Berea. He gets kicked out of there and then eventually lands in Athens. During that time, he was writing to the Philippians and then sometime communication was cut off. So when he says that you revived your concern for me, he's saying, man, you guys remembered me and you now found me. And so I'm so glad that you guys are not just sending this gift, but man, that you remembered me. And he goes on to say, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And so the word concern in verse 10, I think, is very important. It's used about 10 times in this letter alone, and it's used to help explain that being like-minded comes from having the same attitude of mind in Christ. This is something that Paul writes to the Philippians over and over again, particularly in chapter 2. We looked at this last week. In fact, let's, let's uh, go there briefly. This is Philippians chapter 2. I'll read verses 2 through 5 um, uh, by way of uh, uh, reminder. So this is what Paul says. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so he is telling them, uh, thank you for the gift, but I'm not so much excited about the gift. I'm more excited that we are connected because of the same attitude we have in Christ. The gift that Paul receives is merely a tangible uh, expression of their concern for him. And so when he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord, he's saying, I love the gift, but my joy is in Christ. So thank you so much for what you, uh, for your prayers and for your offering and for what you've given me. He turns the focus off of the gift and places the focus on Christ. And so this is just further argument that Paul's central focus in light of contentment is found in the work of Christ. And he even, uh, he even turns the Philippians to that by, by telling them that they are of the same mind. And he goes on, not that I am speaking of being in need. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He's saying, I'm not saying I didn't need it. 
I'm just saying the source of my joy isn't this gift. My source of my strength and joy is found in Christ. And the fact that you remembered me, man, it just leads me to uh, rejoice in God all the more. And so their friendship, what it ends up teaching us is that their friendship uh, their, their, their friendship isn't found in, in material needs or even in utility, but their friendship is ultimately found uh, in Christ. And so then Paul, in verse 12, turns to uh, this thing where he says, in whatever situation I am, I've learned to be content. This is kind of like the, the crux of our time. Paul uses the word content not to communicate that his friendship with the Philippians is based on need or utility, but in their foundation on Christ. On Christ. See, Paul uses this word, that word content, he uses this word content and flips it on the culture of their day. See, in the culture of their day, uh, philosophy was a really big deal, and so many of them lived through the sayings and teachings of Stoic philosophers. In fact, during that time, contentment in Stoic philosophy was uh, defined as when a person becomes an independent man, sufficient to himself, and in need of none else. Or, a man should be sufficient unto himself, for all things, and able, by the power of his own will, to resist the force of circumstances. See, contentment in their day is ultimately something that you obtained on your own by pulling up your bootstraps and making it happen. Paul uses that word and flips it and says, I obtained this. I have obtained contentment as a result of Christ's work in me. He flips it on him. And he does this quite often in several of his letters. But he flips it on him and says, man, I have obtained this. I have learned to be content in light of what Christ has done for me, in me, and through me. And so then we continue into verses uh, 12 and 13. This is where we get to everyone's favorite verse. He said, and he explains it. So he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, this is how he explains it. He says, I know how to be brought low. In other words, I know how to be humbled. He says, I know how to abound. He says, I've been there. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. That's also something that I would encourage you to underline. He says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul isn't talking about, when he, when he goes on to say that, man, he's had plenty and he's been hungry, he's not talking about the good old days, right? He's not just talking about life experience in the sense of like, yeah, I remember when I was this, or I remember when I had this in my Christian walk. It was a good season. Paul is saying, I know what it's like to have both. That's not the source of my strength. That is not the source that ultimately leads me to have satisfaction in Christ, but it has been through those circumstances that God has allowed me to be in that I recognize that the source of my strength is my communion with Christ. That's his argument. That the source of his strength, the source of his contentment, the source of his satisfaction is his communion with Christ. And so when he writes, I've learned the secret, what he is saying is that the secret of contentment isn't in fluctuating circumstances, but it's in keeping his eyes on his relationship with Christ. That's why he writes about it so emphatically throughout his letters. 
He is not just having Sunday morning conversation, and he's not just speaking. In fact, he's not at all speaking Christianese. He is incredibly serious and absolute and convictional about him being in Christ. What does that mean? Man, it means that the source of who he is, the core of his ever being, is in the finished work of Christ done for him on his behalf. That Christ is his ultimate resource or source of strength, power, peace, and contentment. That he is most satisfied in Christ. And because he is most satisfied in Christ, Christ is most glorified. That is ultimately what Paul is talking about. It doesn't mean that the situations aren't hard. He just told you he's gone in hunger. It doesn't mean that sometimes it's a really good season. He just said he's had plenty before. But as much as some of those seasons are good and as much as some of those seasons are difficult, that is not where he finds his source for contentment, his source for strength. It is in Christ and what he has been doing. And so that leads us into verse 13, right? And he goes on to say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Again, I'll poke fun at you a little bit. Maybe you have it tattooed on your wrist, or maybe it's on your Instagram, and it's the hashtag underneath your biography, right? This is one of those verses that is taken out of context so many times. And I'd like to just spend a little bit of time unpacking it. First, I will say that when Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, the context of what Paul is talking about is in what he just wrote, that he has the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in him. And whether he's hungry or he's filled with food, he can do all things. In other words, he can walk through those circumstances because of God at work in him. He is not claiming to be omnipotent. He is not claiming to say, anything I can do, I'm going to do because Christ is on my side. No, like he's still going to fall on his face and there are still some hard seasons and circumstances moving forward. In fact, only a couple of years later after he wrote this letter, he was beheaded, right? So there is some reality that comes with reading Philippians 4.13. Now, one thing that really does bother me about many, not all, about many people who do quote Philippians 4.13 is that they miss, not that they misquote it, but they fail to understand its meaning. You might say, you might say that, uh, man, as, as as a Christian, maybe even a conservative, that you might say that name it and claim it theology is unbiblical right? That it's taken out of context and that it's mainly preached by prosperity preachers. Man, I'm going to name that car and I'm going to obtain it at some point. Things are taken out of biblical context. And you might say, man, that's wrong. I don't like the way they use that. And that's not what we see in scripture. However, many people use Philippians 4.13 to say the same thing. And that might be you. That might be you when you say, man, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Maybe there's a hook on there, and the hook is, at least I'm quoting Scripture, right? And I go to church on Sunday, and I'm kind of a good person, but this is really what I want, The whole point of I can do all things through him who strengthens me is that Paul is pointing to the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in him. And as a result of that, he can be satisfied in Christ 
regardless of the situation, circumstance, or uh, whatever's going on in his life. Some of you use Philippians 4.13 as a way to name and claim whatever it is you want, taking this out of context and devaluing the work of the Holy Spirit in you. And you miss it all of the time. And you might even do it with uh, a variety of things. But the truth is, when you use it out of context, when you use it out of context, really what you're revealing, if we're going back to the beginning, character reveals conviction, what you reveal is that there's something else ruling your heart other than your affections for Christ. That's what you reveal when you take it out of context. That something else is stirring and ruling your heart other than your affections for Christ. And so what ends up happening, even though you may not necessarily use this verse when it comes to a new car or a new house, maybe you use it in terms of finding a spouse, a husband, or a wife. Man, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me, therefore, uh, this is kind of what I want. I want a husband and I want a spouse. You might say like, well, you know, that's not necessarily bad. And you're right. It's not bad. It's not bad to aspire to want to be a husband. It's not bad to aspire to be a wife. But Jesus didn't die so that you would be married. He died so that you would be redeemed. Okay? And the same thing applies even if you are married. Man, I've seen spouses, I've seen spouses use this verse as a way of changing their spouse into the trophy that they really want them to be. They just won't use that language. Right? I've seen it done with children. Again, what we're talking about isn't biblical, gospel-centered theology. What we're talking about is idolatry. And that's where many of you stand. And just because you got it tattooed on your wrist, just because you have it on your Instagram, just because you have your shirt and it says it on there, whatever, just because you have it on there doesn't mean you're actually submitting to what it actually means. And you're just being crafty with your words and you're just sprinkling some Christianese all over it. And really, you devalue the gospel and you undervalue the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. And you don't like it. But the reason you don't like it is because something else is pulling the affections of Christ from your heart. Maybe it's status, maybe it's a trophy, whatever. Contentment is not learned by life experience only, but most significantly by being in Christ. When Paul says, him who strengthens me, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, Paul denies anyone or anything the claim as his source of strength. Paul, uh, Paul finds contentment, or Paul sees contentment not as something that is passive and not as something that is wishful thinking, but it is an active pursuit of the goal to know Christ. I think John Piper says it really well, that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. Last week, we talked a little bit about joy. Paul uses the word rejoice here. And we said, uh, man, that joy is not an emotion. It's a lifestyle. So then what is the opposite of joy? Well, the opposite of joy is unrepentance. This week, we're talking about contentment, right? Contentment is uh, us finding complete satisfaction 
in Christ in spite of our circumstances. Okay, so then what's the opposite of contentment? I would argue that the opposite of contentment is unbelief. It's unbelief. Perhaps that's where you stand. And you might argue that I'm not. But something else reveals something different. Your heart reveals something different. So if, if unrepentance is the opposite of joy, again, I would argue that unbelief is the opposite of contentment. Paul's contentment, his embrace of his contentment, just like our embrace of contentment, it should not be found in your intellect, in your experience. Uh, it should not be found in your personal strength or even in whatever talent you have or whatever occupation you currently uh, have. Contentment should be found in our communion with Christ. That is how it is obtained. That is how we ultimately grind or ground our feet on the finished work of Christ done on our behalf. Man, and so if you're a Christian and you find yourself in man unrepentance and even unbelief and really unbelief as a result of wanting to share, wanting to share Jesus with something else. Perhaps you want to share Jesus with, man, the one day to be married or the one day to have a certain job or the one day to obtain X, Y, and Z. My admonishment to you would be to repent. Repent of idolatry. Repent of idolatry and turn and trust in Jesus. See, when we are most satisfied in Christ, He is more glorified. Christ died for sinners so that they would be redeemed, live for His glory, and their good. That still leaves hard circumstances sometimes. And that still leaves maybe not getting married, maybe not getting the job, maybe not having children. I don't know. We could put a bunch of things in there. Christ died for sinners so that they would be redeemed, live for His glory, and their good. And if you don't know Jesus, man, my encouragement, my, my exhortation to you would be to come to know Him. To turn away from your sin. To stop chasing endless pursuits of contentment that inevitably fail that will inevitably drop the ball, that inevitably leave you unhappy, right? Uh, and based on the circumstance. Coming to Jesus may not necessarily mean or doesn't necessarily mean that the circumstance changes, but it does mean that the condition of your heart is made new to look at your circumstance through the lens of the gospel. Let's pray. God, contentment is, is something that I, I think we all want. We all want to obtain. Um, I think it would help us define man, uh, certain things in our life. But we often don't want to look at contentment as our satisfaction in your son Jesus only. And I think the reason for that is because we constantly want something else in addition to Jesus, and that is really a result of our unbelief. 
And so, Father, as we come before you in prayer, would you forgive us of our unbelief? Would you, through your word and your Holy Spirit, uh, man, ignite our hearts so that our affections would be stirred for Jesus? That we would be reminded of his work, not just on the cross, but his work in us, redeeming us for his glory and our good. Lord, the problem that we face with contentment is ultimately that we're rebels and we constantly rebel against you. Yet in love, you have pursued us and continually pursue us like a loving father pursues his children. So God, in this time, may we repent of our sin so that we would see the goodness and greatness uh, of Jesus so that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit and our hearts would be renewed and our minds would be renewed. And may we submit to you by first uh, uh, in prayer and then singing your praises. God, as we walk into a time of tithes and offerings, this is where we give you our stuff. This is where we relinquish the control we think we have and worship you through giving. We worship you through giving because ultimately on the cross, Jesus gave the ultimate form of generosity uh, by dying for sinners. You, Father, gave the ultimate form of generosity by sending him for, to die for sinners. So God, may we, be, may we give generously, uh, not grudgingly. May we give faithfully, not stubbornly. And may we give cheerfully, not, not in pride. Soften our hearts so that we would expand your kingdom and spread your gospel and live for your glory and our good. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.